Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Catherine Doherty, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. It's Sunday, January 28th. Each episode will feature a look back at highlights and top stories from the week, as well as a preview of what's to come in the week ahead, followed by a deep dive analysis on issues and companies in the distressed and high yield space. This week, we'll feature a segment covering Teva Pharmaceuticals. Our financial and legal analysts, including own patent lawyer plus yours truly, will discuss Teva's challenges from the U.S. generic market, the potential fate of its blockbuster drug Capaxone, and what the company is doing to cut costs and restructure its balance sheet as it grapples with nearly $35 billion of debt. For this week's recap, I'm joined by Jim Holloway. Greetings from Houston, home of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas. We'll begin with Havnanian. The big question of the week still remains as the fate of Solus Asset Management lawsuit has yet to be decided. Judge Laura Taylor Swain took under advisement Solus's motion for a preliminary injunction to block the GSO-backed refinancing deals. After a full day of evidentiary hearing for Havnanian in the Southern District of New York on Thursday, Judge Swain heard testimony from six witnesses, as well as oral arguments from both plaintiff Solus Asset Management and defendants Havnanian and GSO. Now, the contested matter revolves around the question of whether or not Havnanian and GSO manipulated the credit default swap market. Counsel for Solis argues that no less than three components of the deal between GSO and Havnanian have any purpose other than to manipulate the CDS market. Havnanian defends the transactions as the best chance for the home builder, which is still struggling from the impact of the Great Recession, to achieve long-term financial stability. Havnanian's CFO said that he is extremely fearful that if the transaction is blocked, Havnanian will not be able to refinance. Alternatively, a Solis research analyst said that Havnanian is not in financial duress, which sets this transaction apart from similar cases like iHeart and Codir. Both sides agree that failing to make the interest payment in May, as the Havnanian's contested exchange suggests, would trigger a credit event determined by ISDA. After the full-day hearing, Judge Swain took under advisement Solis's motion for a preliminary injunction to block the transactions. She said she cannot promise when she will issue her ruling, but that she was committed to ruling within the time frame previously established, which could mean before the exchange offers expire at midnight tomorrow, January 29th, a big decision to track in the next 24 hours. Cobalt was in bankruptcy court on Thursday and Friday. The debtor was granted approval for their bidding procedures for their Gulf of Mexico assets. Bids are due February 22nd, But according to Cobalt Director John Marshall, who testified, the company has not received any viable offers. Jim, I understand, however, that there has been some activity in the anchor discovery in the Gulf where Cobalt has some interest. Can you tell us a little more? That is correct, Catherine. 
COBOL may not have received any viable offers, but to Tau SA, the French supermajor, certainly found it something it liked there. On Wednesday, it announced the acquisition of Samson Offshore Anchor, which holds a 12.5% working interest in the anchor discovery in the deepwater Gulf of Mexico. Cobalt, of course, announced a very large discovery at its anchor number two well in 2015 and has a 20% interest in the, in the asset. Chevron, with 55%, is the operator. Now, back in September, Total and Chevron announced a partnership in the Gulf of Mexico, which gives Total 25%, 40% in that range, interest in seven wells, including the Wilcox, which is close to the anchor. And, of course, Total has been an investor in Cobalt and has a 40% interest in Cobalt's North Platte asset. Asset. So it'll be interesting to see how the bidding for Anchor and Cobalt's other deep water assets shakes out. Interesting. And to add to that, prior to the hearing on Wednesday, Cobalt filed an updated incentive motion raising the threshold where executives would receive bonuses from a sale from $1.25 billion to $1.5 billion. Back in December, Cobalt settled with Senegal and agreed to receive a $500 million payment from the Angolan State Oil Company, plus a $250 million deposit received in 2015. The cash associated with this transaction was also a subject of the company's cash collateral dispute with unsecured bondholders. Unsecured creditors took issue with the adequate protection, saying that Cobalt's $500 million settlement with Senegal, when combined with Cobalt's cash on hand, would leave first lien creditors vastly oversecured. Judge Isker, in his ruling, found nothing impermissible in granting liens on avoidance actions, as they are, quote, the property of the estate and not the unsecured creditors. And while Judge Isker also approved the settlement with Senegal, he noted the Angolan state oil company's retinence to enter into the agreement and said that he does not have a lot of confidence that the debtors would get the money. Ultimately, though, Judge Isker did grant Cobalt's cash collateral motion. Meanwhile, across the seas on the island of Puerto Rico, the Commonwealth and its electric and sewer authorities all filed revised fiscal plans with the PROMESA Oversight Board. The Commonwealth projects that five years from now, its accumulated budget deficit could be as high as $3.5 billion, with no cash surplus to service its debt. The electric utility is planning a privatization in line with Governor Ricardo Rossello's announcement earlier in the week, while the sewer authority is asking for $450 million more than it did in its last fiscal plan. The island's bond insurer, Assured Guarantee, calls the plans fiscally irresponsible and predicted Puerto Rico would be shut out of the capital markets if the plans are approved. In a statement to Reorg, Paul Weiss, advisor to the ad hoc group of general obligation bondholders, said more transparency is required. And last week led with another Sunday night filing, this time from Philadelphia Energy Solutions. The owner of the largest oil refining complex on the East Coast filed for Chapter 11 in the District Court of Delaware with a plan of reorganization in hand. Holders of the company's Term Loan A and Term Loan B claims, representing the only two voting classes, voted unanimously to accept the plan. Philadelphia Energy says it's aiming for confirmation by February 23rd, less than a month away. 
the debtors blamed the cost of compliance credits to meet environmental standards as one of the reasons for seeking bankruptcy protection. Philadelphia Energy said it would need to spend $350 million to satisfy these standards by the end of March. At a hearing on Tuesday, Judge Kevin Gross approved the debtor's proposed $120 million dip on an interim basis. Now, this dip financing provided by consenting term loan B lenders would convert to a new first lien term loan facility upon exit from Chapter 11. The debtors did ask to adjourn the scheduling motion in light of its ongoing negotiations with the EPA regarding the compliance credits. Council for Philadelphia Energy says the additional time could help resolve the U.S. government's various plan-related issues in the case. And on Friday, after reaching an agreement with the EPA to forbear enforcement of collecting the environmental credits until May 1st, the debtors adjourned the confirmation hearing until March 26th. Also last week, Reorg initiated coverage of Albertsons, one of the largest food and drug retailers in the U.S., with $12.2 billion of debt on its balance sheet. The company's same-store sales fell for a fourth consecutive quarter in its most recent reporting period, as it grappled with minimal food price inflation and a brutal competitive environment. The company said in its latest filing that its investments in promotion and price during the period, quote, did not achieve the desired impact of increasing customer traffic that the company was hoping for. However, management did say that the company continued to aggressively spend on promotions during the fourth quarter. Albertsons also said that acquisitions remains an important part of its strategy moving forward and that the company continues to squeeze costs from its 2015 purchase of Safeway. Jim, I've looked at a map of Albertsons operations and it looks like they have a significant presence in Texas where you're based. That is correct, Catherine. Albertsons is the owner of Randall's, which it acquired as part of the Safeway acquisition in 2015. Randall's began in Houston back in the 50s, I think, and it's still concentrated here and it's the city's fourth biggest grocer. Now, what Randall's is best known for is its fried chicken. Whenever there's one of those Vox Populi polls on the best fried chicken in Houston, it usually places in the top three. It's not as good as my mama's from South Georgia, but it is awful good. Now, as for the competitive environment here, the most significant rival is probably HEB, which is also native to Texas, founded by Miss Florence Butt in Kerrville, which is out in the Hill Country, in 1905. It's since grown to be the bit largest privately held company in Texas with over 300 stores. HEB has a big array of its own private label brands, from bacon to beans to bread, which I'd imagine grants it a certain competitive advantage. There actually is a Randall's close to me in southwest Houston where I live. HEB is building a store across the street, and it looks to be about the size of an aircraft carrier. We're all interested in seeing how that will shake out, but Randall's really does have that good fried chicken. Thanks, Jim. Notable developments in retail this week include Guitar Center, who raised its fiscal 2017 EBITDA guidance after stronger-than-expected third- and fourth-quarter results, particularly over the crucial holiday selling season. And Toys R Us, who filed a motion seeking to close up to 182 suboptimal stores. 
Separately, certain iHeartMedia creditors from the cooperation group have signed non-disclosure agreements with the company in order to review a restructuring proposal which was sent to the group's advisors. Our top red stories of the week were, one, First Energy, their announcement of $2.5 billion equity investment from Elliott, Bluescape, GIC, and Zimmer Partner. Two, U.S. trustee, their appointment of a five-member UCC in the Exco Chapter 11 cases. And three, Puerto Rico, the revised Commonwealth fiscal plan, sees no debt service funds over five years. And now I'll pass it back to Jim in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thank you, Catherine. And I'd especially like to thank the listeners, those of y'all joining us again or those of y'all dialing in for the first time. An exciting week ahead, especially if you're a Hovnanian, GSO, Solus, or a CDS trader. As Catherine mentioned, Hovnanian's tender offers expire at the midnight hour on Monday, January 29th, with Judge Swain hopefully issuing her ruling prior to that. If you're a holder of iHeart's 14% 2021s or Synvio's 6% first liens due 2019, make sure you check your account on Wednesday, January 31st. That's when the coupon payments are due. On Thursday, February 1st, a listening session on the future of Puerto Rico's energy sector at the U.S. Customs House at One Bowling Green in New York City. This past week's fiscal plan indicates privatization is in the offing for the Commonwealth's battered power grid. If you'd like to attend, make sure you register at www.oversightboard.pr.gov. Thursday also brings a DS hearing for Cumulus in New York and a dip approval and asset sale hearing for Mosi and Gisolfi in Delaware. And on Friday, February 2nd, a confirmation hearing for Armstrong Energy, with 51% of the reorganized coal miners' equity slated for the pockets of Murray Energy and the rest to secured note holders. And earnings season draws nigh, with results due from AK Steel on Tuesday, Navios Marine and Silgan on Wednesday, U.S. Steel on Thursday, Weatherford and Sprint on Friday. And that's all from me, and if the good Lord's willing and the creek don't rise, hope to see you all next week. Back to you, Catherine in New York. Thanks, Jim. We'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now, earlier this week, Reorg released a deep dive podcast segment on Teva Pharmaceuticals for our subscribers. Mark Fisher, director of credit research at Reorg, sat down with the team to learn more about the company's situation. Hello, and welcome to another podcast by Reorg Research. My name is Mark Fisher. I'm the Director of Credit Research. And today, we're going to be talking about Teva Pharmaceuticals. With me is the entire Reorg Research Teva team, including Catherine Doherty, a member of our reporting team. Catherine came to us from Bloomberg, where she covered the pharmaceutical industry. Damien Jurens, a legal analyst specializing in patents. Damien is part of our new product, Event Driven, and was formerly with Baker McKenzie and Latham & Watkins. Also, Stephen Opper, one of our distressed debt analysts. Stephen was formerly in the restructuring group at Evercore. And Alicia Turak, one of our covenant team lawyers. Alicia was formerly at Wattel Lipton and came to us from Morriston and Forster. It's great to have everyone with me today. So to begin, Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about Teva as a company? 
Sure thing, Mark. So Teva is one of the world's largest generic drug makers. It's headquartered in Israel and operates primarily through two segments, both its generic medicines and specialty medicines. Teva's financial strains can be traced back to an acquisition back in 2015 when Teva agreed to acquire Allergen's generic pharmaceuticals business for $33.5 billion of cash and around $100 million of Teva shares. Now, at the time, the shares were valued at $5 billion, where today the shares have lost almost two-thirds of their value since the Allergan acquisition closed in 2016. The deal did not yield the sales boost in generics that Teva was hoping for, so today the company is saddled with around $35 billion of debt, a lot of which stems from Teva's bet on Allergan. Thanks, Catherine. So you talked about the sales growth not hitting the uh, potentially the targets that Teva you know had in mind. What's been holding the generic revenue uh, back? I can take this one. Uh, more broadly, the U.S. generics market is currently experiencing a period of price deflation, which really stems from both FDA initiatives and also supply chain consolidation. This deflation has uh, impacted the profitability of generic manufacturers in general, who produce relatively commoditized products and compete largely on price. So in addition to that, although the FDA has created an environment that's more conducive to the launching of generic products, Teva's really struggled to meet goals for launching those new products. Revenue from those product launches could partially counter the impact of this price deflation. Thanks. And, and that was Stephen Opper uh, for everybody. Um, and I, now, as I understand it, there's actually two issues. You know, one is the generic issue that you talked about, and the other one is one of their branded drugs, Capaxone. Catherine, can you just give us a little background? Uh, what is Capaxone? Sure. So Capaxone is a multiple sclerosis drug that at one point generated around half of Teva's profits. So it was a crucial component of the company's specialty pharmaceutical segment. And Teva offers Capaxone in two doses. They have their 20 milligram and then their 40 milligram dosage. Uh, it's an injectable drug and can either be administered once a day, that's for the 20 milligram dosage, or three times a week, that's for the 40 milligram. So as you might imagine, most patients would prefer the 40 milligram option because you only have to inject the drug three times a week as opposed to every day. And the Capaxone is, is a you know very important drug for Teva. In fact, the company's revenue and operating margin are heavily impacted by the product itself, which is one of the reasons why Teva has worked so hard to fight off generic competition to both uh, initially the 20 milligram version of the drug and now more specifically the 40 milligram version. Teva currently generates approximately 17% of its revenue from the multiple sclerosis franchise. And because this particular drug is so profitable, it actually generates 57% of its segment operating profit from the MS franchise. So more specifically, as I just mentioned, Teva really is looking to stave off generic competition to the company's 40 milligram version of Capaxone. And that's because when Teva initially produced the product, it generated a 20 milligram version of the product. And leading up to loss of the loss of exclusivity of that product, Teva introduced the new 40 milligram option, which, as Catherine pointed out, is much preferred by patients. And in that process, they basically shifted the entire market from the 20 milligram version to the 40 milligram version. And now about 86% of all current prescriptions, current U.S. prescriptions, I should say, are filled in the 40 milligram version, as well as 77% of European prescriptions 
So it's really shifted the market to the, the 40 milligram from the 20 milligram, which is where we are right now. Until recently, Teva has been able to avoid generic competition to the 40 milligram version through uh, its efforts to try and protect the exclusivity of that product. And even though the patent litigation is still ongoing, Mylan recently in October, I believe, launched a generic version of the 40 milligram version at risk, which is really problematic for Teva going forward. Thank you both. That was that was an incredible overview. Now, as, as I understand it, uh, Stephen, you mentioned Mylan. Um, as I understand it, there are two current competitors of Capaxone. Actually, there's just one competitor to the 40 milligram version right now, and that's Mylan, who got their FDA approval, as Stephen just said, uh, in the generic space in the fourth quarter of last year. However, Momenta, another competitor, they've also announced that they're working on getting approval by the FDA for their 40 milligram version as well. They do have a 20 milligram version, their generic version called Glatopa, and they've indicated interest in entering the market within a year for their 40 milligram version. So just looking back at I guess branded drugs in, in general, or Stephen, you've laid out in the past sort of a, a clear path um, or almost predictable path in terms of how generic competition comes in and erodes that market share and potentially profit. Can you, can you walk us through that? Sure. Uh, just going back also, if you look at the information that Teva has put forward on the drug in particular, they, you know, they've given some estimates as to what the revenue and also earnings per share impact would be due to generic introductions um, to, to competitors of Capaxone. And initially, they had estimated that assuming one to two competitors launched generic alternatives in, I think, around February of 2017, the impact for the entire year would, would be approximately $1.1 billion in annual revenue and about $0.75 cents per share and earnings per share impact. Once the information became more clear, they actually revised that impact slightly up to give a wider range. Uh, and and the, the, media, the, or the middle, the average impact was about $1.15 billion and $0.85 cents a share. So you can see they've increased the, uh, the impact or the perceived impact of generic alternatives. Now, it's possible that the impact could be even, even larger based on information um, of historical introductions of generic alternatives to branded drugs which have indicated that loss of share, loss of market share could be up to 90% for some large drugs within, uh, I think, I believe it's 12 months or so of introduction of the generic alternatives. So although Teva has outlined a potentially large impact over time, and depending on how many new competitors introduce alternatives, the impact could be much greater. So if you look at the data that Teva put forward, depending on how you look at it, we don't know all of the assumptions that they included in their forecasts. But there's some indication that they were guiding to approximately a 40% decline in 40 milligram U.S. Capaxone revenues. And that would be somewhat in line with the loss of market share that the company experienced with one generic alternative in the market for the 20 milligram version. That would be Glatopa. So the only issue is that the current situation is much different now since they don't have the possibility of shifting the market, as we discussed previously, to a higher dosage version as they had before during the 20 milligram experience. And so because of that, there's potential for, depending on how many new entrants enter the market, there's potential for increased deterioration of their market share. And that deterioration really accelerates the more competitors come into play with new products. And so that's why even though only Mylan currently has a 40 milligram alternative, the possibility of additional competitors is a real issue. 
Yeah, one of those competitors that's not far behind Mylan in terms of FDA approval is Momenta, which is looking to bring in its 40 milligram version. Just uh, a month ago at the JP Morgan conference, Momenta said it's committed to getting its product to the market by the end of the year, if not sooner. Um, So that might have a huge potential impact for Mylan and Teva, anyone that's trying to get their generic version to market. And Momenta has said that the Pfizer um, is being reviewed their facility by the Food and Drug Administration, and they reportedly responded to 483 questions from the FDA in a warning letter that was sent to them. And Momenta has said that there's a good chance that they'll resolve all of these questions, which would lead to the approval of Glatopa um, in the 40 milligram version. And the company also said it's exploring the possibility of changing to another backup supplier. So all this to say more approvals from companies like Momenta and Mylan, the more Teva loses its stake in the Capaxone market. So Mylan is producing already their 40 milligram version. Momenta has their 20 milligram uh, and seems to be or thinks they are pretty close uh, to getting their 40 milligram out. Plus, the two of them and a number of others are part of a patent case against Teva for these companies to launch their generic versions. Damien, who's in D.C. right now, please tell us about where we are in, in those cases. Uh, Well, Mark, it looks like right now Teva is still fighting multiple generic manufacturers over a handful of Capaxone patents. In the district court, they have uh, an ongoing case regarding two of the patents that cover the final sterile filtration step in the manufacturing process, though Teva has settled with every defendant in that case except Sando at this point. Now, at the federal circuit, Teva is fighting to revive four Capaxone patents that were invalidated in the District of New Jersey. They also appealed three final written decisions from the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, which is also known as the PTAB, that invalidated three of those four patents uh, through the Interpartis Review or IPR process. A briefing is completed for the appeals at the Federal Circuit, and we're waiting for the court to schedule oral, oral arguments in those. In the meantime, Mylan has already launched a generic version of the drug, and Sando and Momenta are already making noises about bringing their own generic versions to market by the end of this year. Because the Federal Circuit appeals haven't yet wrapped up, those first generic versions will be launched at risk of patent infringement. But given the generally poor state of affairs regarding those patents, Mylan and Sando are willing to take that chance. You mentioned the product was launched at risk. What does that mean? At risk launch, that literally means launching at risk of patent infringement. So in this case, the district court has already decided that the Teva Capaxone patents are invalid. The Federal Circuit might decide otherwise, in which case uh, Mylan would be marketing a drug that is still covered under Teva patents and could be sued for willful infringement of those patents. Great. Thanks, guys. Uh, that, you know, that was a great overview on Capaxone. Now, you know, I mentioned earlier that there are two threats that, that we see, two major threats here. One is the Capaxone, uh, but the other one is the generic market in general. Uh, now, and Teva's latest call They had talked a little bit about this. Actually, the last couple of calls, they talked a little bit about this. And what they said is that they've been seeing price erosion of 10% in their generic business in the the third quarter. Uh, This is actually consistent with what some of the other generic manufacturers have said. Mylan, for instance, uh, said that they expected high single-digit decline in their third quarter uh, comments. 
And, uh, you know, other uh, competitors have said similar things as well. Endo, uh, actual Endo Pharmaceuticals, actually uh, went a step further and said that they've talked about that they've seen structural changes in the market. Uh, Stephen, you've actually written about a lot of these structural changes in a, um, in a report on the pharmaceutical uh, supply chain that, that you wrote about recently. Can you just talk about uh, some of these structural changes that are happening and how they're affecting the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, of course. We spoke about this, we wrote about this recently uh, in regard to Rite Aid, which obviously is not a pharmaceutical manufacturer, but is part of the pharmaceutical supply chain. And similar issues uh, or, or changes in the structure of the supply chain actually impact that company as well. Uh, now, in regard to Teva, the pharmaceutical supply chain is, is very complex, but essentially there are a number of points where negotiating power plays a, a significant role. Drug wholesalers who, who purchase the drugs from manufacturers have consolidated amongst themselves and also with other generic purchasers. And they've come together to really create a tight group of purchasing entities. I think some estimates indicate that approximately 90% of all generic purchases are made by the top three purchasers. So those groups have really um, consolidated in recent years, whereas wholesalers didn't play as much of a role in the generic market previously. Those groups have now gained a significant amount of negotiating leverage. And through their purchasing power, they've been able to extract increased price discounts from uh, generic manufacturers. And so you've seen generic manufacturers discussing how that consolidation of, of, of both those purchasing entities and also PBMs and some other structural changes in the supply chain have impacted their margins rather significantly. Thanks. And, and Catherine, going back to you, you know, in general, what can Teva actually do to fight off uh, some of this competition, both in Capaxone and the generic market in general? So Teva continues to reference these increased pressures they're seeing from the generic market, as well as overall pricing pressures in the U.S. Teva's new CEO, Kerr Schultz, told investors there's been some risk for their products that miss a profitability benchmark in the generic space. He says the company continues to review and evaluate price cuts for some of these products. And he also says they'll possibly discontinue some that have high manufacturing costs or if the products miss the company's benchmark overall at a loss for the company. Uh, and when asked about generic competition specifically, Schultz has said that many of the same tools used by branded manufacturers to protect market shares of original products, including Teva in its defense of Capaxone, They've also made Teva's process of launching new generics more difficult. So the recent price cuts the company has announced are supposed to help them deal with the revenue loss, but it's also important that Teva keep investing in new products in the specialty space so that they're first to the market. So Alicia, you know, we discussed all these headwinds. Uh, from the debt perspective, uh, you know, the company has over $35 billion in debt. What have they done to manage these potential declines and, and give them some flexibility in the face of these headwinds? So as of September, they've actually amended all of their bank debt to give themselves um, some more flexibility to handle any sort of decline. So in this, in each piece of their bank debt, they have a net debt to EBITDA ratio covenant. And that ratio was set at 5x for the second and third quarters of 2017, but it was going to drop to 4.25 with the fourth quarter of 2017. Now, uh, Teva disclosed that its ratio was 4.7 for the third quarter, so it's very unlikely it would have been able to meet that 4.25 ratio threshold in the fourth quarter. 
But in September, they entered into substantially similar amendments with all of their bank lenders that eased this covenant. The net debt to EBITDA ratio now is set at five through the fourth quarter of 2018, then dropping to 4.75 for the first and second quarters of 2019 and 4.5 for the third and fourth quarters of 2019. And it will eventually get down to three and a half with the fourth quarter of 2020. So if Teva maintained its third quarter ratio of 4.7, it would now be able to meet this covenant through the third quarter of 2019 uh, without having any concerns. And the amendments also added a 30-day cure period for this leverage ratio to give them even more flexibility. Um, and that cure period is subject to customary restrictions. Alicia, thank you for that overview. Catherine, I want to switch back to you and, and actually wrap it up. You know, we talked a lot about the threats that are facing Teva. Uh, you alluded to earlier so some of the things that they're doing to offset some of these declines, particularly in the generic business. What else can the company do to, to offset um, these declines and, and potentially grow from here? So with this new CEO coming in, his big announcement that the company had made in December um, is this two-year restructuring plan, which calls for the reduction of 25% of the company's workforce. And a lot of what they're doing in terms of restructuring is looking at where they can cut costs to both their development, as I had mentioned earlier, looking at which of their products are not making them enough money and cost them more money to operate and produce. And in addition to the employee reduction, they're really looking to at a total base of $3 billion, aiming to cut that much by 2019 out of an estimated cost base for 2017 of, they said, a little over $16 billion. So they're immediately starting this process. They're reviewing potentials for divestments, they said, of additional non-core assets. And they're also so looking to see how they can optimize their cost base while ensuring that they're protecting their revenue and preserving their core capabilities in the generics and specialty businesses. Thanks, Catherine. And to put that $3 billion cost number in perspective, LTM, Teva generated over $7 billion in EBITDA. So definitely significant uh, offset, of course, by some of the pressures that the company might be feeling uh, going forward. Switching over to the top line, as a pharmaceutical company, obviously Teva introduces new drugs on, on an annual basis. Wanted to explore some of that, what's coming uh, down the pipe for them. And to start, uh, I'm going to turn back to Damien, who's done a lot of work looking at one potential generic to go against an allergen branded drug. Damien, you've written a lot about this issue. Uh, please explain for everybody. Oh, yeah, sure. The, the drug that we're keeping an eye on there is called cyclosporin, which is marketed by Allergan under the brand name Restasis. Now, there's a huge controversy right now over several Restasis patents at the PTAB. Teva, or Teva, excuse me, and two other manufacturers filed IPR petitions to review those patents, and the PTAB instituted six separate trials. So Allergan then turned around and tried to sidestep the IPR process by assigning six of those patents to the St. Regis Mohawk tribe. Then the tribe asserted its sovereign immunity in an effort to terminate review of those patents. So Teva and some other manufacturers are fighting to keep that review alive, and we expect an order from the PTAB on that any day now. If the PTAB finds that the tribe can assert its sovereign rights, then the IPR trials will be dismissed and those patents will be safe from the clutches of the PTAB. 
Now, unfortunately for Allergan, that might not be enough to stop Teva since four of those Restasis patents were already killed by the Eastern District of Texas. There's an appeal still pending in that case at the Federal Circuit. Now, the market for generic cyclosporin is potentially lucrative since Allergan's annual revenues for Restasis are around $1.3 billion. There are, however, several other manufacturers looking to produce their own generics, and those include Mylan, Acorn, Inopharma, and Famicare. And Stephen, what else do they have in the pipeline? So as I mentioned earlier, Teva has had a difficult time launching new generic products as well. Initially, the company had targeted a high end of $750 million in revenue contribution from the launch of new generic products in 2017. That number was reduced to $500 million, and that $500 million figure was reaffirmed during the second quarter, and then further reduced to $400 million during the third quarter of 2017. So you can see that the company has really had a difficult time and, and hasn't met the expectations that they had outlined for themselves or that management had outlined previously in launching new generic products. So thanks, everybody. Uh, wrapping it up, I thought that was really informative, great overview uh, on the company and really great description on some of the issues they face and what we could expect going forward. Thank you, everyone that participated. Uh, Alicia from Denver, Damien from D.C., Stephen and Catherine, uh, who joined me here today in New York. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Catherine Doherty. Join us next time on Reorg's weekly podcast.